following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Good morning. Let's find your way back to your seats. We do want to continue in a somewhat brisk fashion. You may have noticed on the way in that there is a horse trough full of water outside. Um, and we're not starting a farm. We are actually baptizing uh, a sister in Christ this morning into membership. Uh, just really immediately at the end of the service, we'll, we'll do that. Um, so we'll all, um, just as a way of logistics, um, we will end our service outside. So after our sermon in the Lord's Supper, um, with a song or two, we'll make our way outside um, to, to baptize um, our sister Melissa. And then we'll end there with a singing of the doxology and then uh, and a benediction um, together. If you have your Bibles, please open them to Galatians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take one of the ones on the chairs next to you or several of the, the Bibles on the bookshelves behind you in the room there. That's our gift to you. There are also plenty of other books uh, for you. Back there, I will highlight two of them again. One is, What Does the Bible Teach About Homosexuality? Uh, this is a really important book by Kevin DeYoung. It is short, like most of the books out there, but a really helpful and um, a brief treatment on the topic of homosexuality from the Bible and interacts with a lot of the, the scriptural passages there that touch on the subject and also some of the objections and the arguments you hear uh, from others concerning uh, that issue. And the real reason that we've, we've got this was because if you do any work, especially downtown, you're part of First Friday Ministry, uh, chances are you'll run into somebody who wants to know your position or the church's position on LGBTQ+, etc. And uh, while that's clear from our statement of faith, you can see that online at any point in time, they often want to question you and to see if you have any biblical rationale for holding a, what would you call the traditional, or what we would call biblical view of, of marriage and sexuality. Well, that book gives you some helpful answers uh, and arguments to understand why we believe what we believe about that. So there's plenty of them that's free for you to take. Any of those books are free for you to use and take. Um, there's several of them in the very back. And there's also a couple short books uh, called Understanding Baptism, which are back there as well. So if you're curious about what's taking place this morning and uh, want a really quick read, you can do this just in an hour or two. Um, take up one of those small little books, Understanding Baptism, and, uh, and read that. And then please follow up with, with myself or John or any of the other members of the church if, you, if you'd like to, to know more about what that looks like and means for you. That being said, let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll study together God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and your kindness and your goodness towards us in Christ Jesus. We pray, God, this morning that our hearts and minds would be open and attuned to your word, led and illuminated by the Spirit, that we would see clearly in your scripture, what it means to be faithful and steadfast to the gospel. That we would know it, treasure it, obey it, proclaim it, and marvel at it. And that Christ in our hearts and in our lives and in our church would be exalted and lifted high. And that in all that we do, the name of Christ would be glorified. We pray as we study your word for those here who are weary from a long week and exhausted from the difficult trials and troubles of life, the, the mothers, the fathers, the husbands, the wives, the workers, the students, the teachers, all of us, Lord, come with 
bearing trials of different kinds, but may we in, in grace and in thanksgiving count them all joy, that we may see in those trials your working for our good and our joy and your glory. We love you, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. We're dropping in the middle of Paul's historical argument for the veracity of the gospel that he's once preached to the Galatian church. He's now defending the gospel, which is slowly but gradually becoming abandoned by the Christians there in Galatia as they're led astray by false teachers. He wants them to recover the gospel, to remember that gospel he preached to them. And some of the opponents that are leading them astray are saying, Paul is not a legitimate apostle. He didn't receive his apostleship, his credentials from Peter and the other apostles, the pillars in Jerusalem. He wasn't even a disciple of Jesus. He persecuted the church. And he wants to do away with the law. And said the law is central to the gospel. You should be circumcised and follow these commandments of Moses to build upon what Jesus has done for you. And so they're, by this teaching, leading genuine Christians astray and off the path of righteousness and dangerously close to damnation. So Paul, troubled by this, reaches out, writes this letter to remind them of the gospel he has preached. Galatians is roughly broken into three parts. First, the historical portion where Paul reminds them of his credentials, of how he came to faith, of who he is, how God, Christ, had saved him and called him personally, and how he didn't receive his calling from man. Then we get into the theological section of the book where he unpacks the, the meat of the gospel, this justification by faith, this righteousness by Jesus' works and not our own, and then ends in the last two chapters with a sort of ethical treatment, how we live in light of that, what we do with the law, if it doesn't save us, how then do Christians understand it? So we're still in that first part, the historical section, where Paul is giving an account of his own calling to give himself a standing on which to continue teaching. He doesn't here defend himself for a sake of honor or for reputation, but simply for the sake of the gospel. He understands the gospel, the very gospel is at stake. And if we get the gospel wrong, if we add to the gospel or take away from the gospel, the foundation of our very salvation becomes undermined and our souls are imperiled by damnation. And so he loves the, the, the Galatian church and so he seeks to rectify what is being abused and to correct the heresies that are promulgated. So Galatians 2, chapter, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. He says, Then after 14 years, that's 14 after his conversion, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom, that we have in Christ Jesus so that they may bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. 
And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to, be the, to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived that the grace, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only he asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Again, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus says in one of his gospels, a house divided against itself cannot stand. A house divided against itself cannot stand. He says this in an effort to defeat his own opponents, the Pharisees and the scribes, who claimed that he was casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, the sort of father of the demons, as it were. And he looks straight into the logic of this argument and says, that's, that's a silly argument. Why would the prince of demons be casting out demons? That's self-defeating. He says a kingdom or a house divided against itself cannot stand. The point here is that when internal factions in an institution or in a body cause weakness and disunity and strife, when they work against one another, this institution will not be able to stave off external powerful threats. They become weakened by their own insecurities and their own disunity. And the more powerful foes outside of them will gain the upper hand and likely overcome them. And history is replete with examples of this kind of hubris. When the great and the mighty look within themselves and begin to quabble and argue, and they become disunified, divided, and fractioned. Consider, for instance, the fall of Rome here in the 5th century. Rome, of course, was a great empire spanning many, many nations and over many, many years. And yet, at its height of its power, it slipped into disunity. Factions crept up, political, religious, socioeconomic factions. And the weakness that that caused allowed the other nations who had been waiting, biding their own time, gaining and consolidating their own strength, took full advantage of the weakness and the division of the Roman Empire. And one of the greatest nations in the history of the earth fell because they were too busy arguing with one another. A more recent example, of course, could be our own civil war. In fact, Abraham Lincoln, speaking just before the civil war, quoted Jesus' words here, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Our country, as it was, became divided among the issue of slavery and states' rights. And that issue and that division caused a war between the parties. And the North and the South, brothers, families, were pitted against one another. And it was perhaps one of the weakest and most vulnerable moments in our own history as a nation. 
But even beyond this, the whole decline of Christianity, for instance, in the West, can be attributed in some part because of the factions that have occurred within the faith. While in other parts of the world, think in the East, in Africa, Christianity is thriving as they undergo persecution and oppression from tyrannical governments. It seems that when Christianity gained a foothold, again at the last years of the Roman Empire, and gained influence and spread and had a place of prominence and even priority in the Western world, Christians became comfortable. Instead of focusing on the gospel, focused in on themselves. Factions about important but not essential theological doctrines crept up. And instead of caring for and loving one another, reaching the lost and sending missionaries out to all nations, we would put one another to death for believing the wrong things. We would found nations and kingdoms upon the gospel. We would institute a national religion and we would consolidate all power and authority instead of ceding all of it to Christ. All of these would be contributed to by the internal breakdown of coherence and this institutional weakness that results from neglect and distraction and, and infighting within these countries and nations and even in Christianity as a whole. And this, I think, is what Paul aims to, to speak to. That there's a danger when factions creep up in the church. And in the Galatian church and in the infant church as a whole, there was a danger of a faction between the circumcision party, as it would be called, and the apostles, like Peter and Paul. And if believed, Christianity as a whole would be weakened. And it would not survive the threats from outside of it because it is too weakened and neglected from the factions within it. Here's the main idea then this morning, if you're taking notes, is that God preserves the integrity and the purity of the gospel through the theological unity and the Christian fellowship of his church. Paul understands that the gospel here needs to be preserved. And so he makes the case that God is working to preserve the integrity and the purity of the gospel so that it remains unadulterated through the theological unity of the church and the fellowship of the church. That the church must be united in its theology, its essential doctrines of the truth, resulting from the truth of the gospel and its fellowship around those truths so that in that united front it may withstand the attacks from the enemy. A house divided against itself indeed will not stand, but a house united will not fall. So Paul endeavors here to give us reasons for why we must work to preserve the gospel. He does this through his own history of speaking how he came to receive the faith, to believe it and preach it, and receive by the other apostles their affirmation and establish theological unity among them and all the churches he helped plant so that the gospel may be preserved for the sake of the nations. 
We'll do this this morning under three headings. As he heads to Jerusalem, we see first the overview of the meeting, the occasion for the meeting, and the outcome of the meeting in Jerusalem. The overview, the occasion, and the outcome of his meeting in Jerusalem. Let's first look at a brief overview of this meeting. He says in verse 1 of chapter 2, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking with me Titus. This would be strategic, as we see in a minute. He says 14 years had gone by since he was converted and called by Jesus on the road to Damascus. This 14 years is by a Jewish reckoning. They count the year that it's in and the year that it ends, so it would be no less than 12 but something to the tune of 12 to 14 years. The point here is that a significant amount of time had elapsed between when Paul was called as an apostle to any substantial meeting with the other apostles in Jerusalem. He's only been to Jerusalem once, he says, and then only 15 days to meet and be acquainted with Peter. But then he had to leave under fear of death. So he returns again. I think this correlates to Acts 11, when he and Barnabas come from Antioch to Jerusalem to deliver an offering for the saints there in Jerusalem. I'll give you a few reasons why. But 14 years later, by the Jewish reckoning, after his first encounter with Christ, in which he was was converted and commissioned to preach the gospel, Paul says that he returns a second time to Jerusalem to have a private conference with the leaders of the church there. Those, Those men of influence, Peter, James, In John, he calls them pillars of the church, those influential men. And like I said, I don't think this is not the summit. I think this is most likely not the summit, I should say, in Acts chapter 15, what's called often the Jerusalem Council. That summit in Jerusalem in Acts 15, in which the council of apostles there and the other leaders in Jerusalem formally would adopt the position that Gentiles indeed are to be included in the church and are not required to observe the Mosaic law. This issue that Paul deals with now would come to a head, and it would require a public and formal address by the leaders of the church, not simply Paul in his own letters, but all of the apostles speaking together on this issue. But again, I say, I do not think this is that particular council in Acts 15. I'll give you three brief reasons. One, in Galatians, there is no other mention of this council and the momentous decision that would have been reached there. In fact, Paul was was asked by the council there in Acts 15 to go and spread the decree, to make it known on his travels. And we see in later in Acts that this is exactly what Paul would do. He would go and he would tell the churches, the Gentiles, of the decree, solidifying and unifying the front of the apostles in the teaching and the spreading of the gospel. But here in Galatians, he makes no mention of that decision that the Jerusalem council would reach in Acts 15. Second reason is that this meeting, we're told, was a private meeting by Paul with the leaders of the church, not a public one. But in Acts 15, it was a public meeting meant to address an issue that had become such, uh, such an issue that it needed a public address. But here Paul addresses these men of influence privately, he says, in verse 2. And third, we see that Paul would be the initiator of this meeting. He is the one who goes to Jerusalem to meet with these men. 
And in Acts 15, he was asked, along with Barnabas, to come and speak on the issue of the circumcision party and the inclusion of the Gentiles. So this is, I think, a significant enough difference between Acts chapter 15 and the Jerusalem Council in which they reached their public and formal decision to say, yes, God seemed to be working among the Gentiles to be included by faith in Christ into the covenant community. This meeting, however, would not be that. Paul makes no mention of that, and so I would submit to you an early reading of this book happening before, just before that summit would take place. And so he goes to Jerusalem to meet with these men, and in their discussion, Paul seeks to show how his gospel and his ministry would be consistent with that of the apostles in Jerusalem, of James and of Peter and of John's, that the church there could vouch for and agree with what he teaches, though he teaches it to the Gentiles and not to the Jews. And he does this lest any division or disunity would take over the church, weaken it or end it and destroy it. Also in verse 3, Paul will confront some of what's called the circumcision party, those who demand circumcision as an addition to the gospel or faith by means of salvation. And some of this circumcision party apparently would show up to this private meeting that Paul would have with the Jerusalem apostles and they would demand that Titus would be circumcised, but he says, we never gave them an inch. We didn't submit to them for even a moment. He was not required by Paul and by the council of the other elders or apostles. He was not required to be circumcised. As a result of this visit then, Paul was hopeful to, to squash any rumors or speculations about the division of the apostles that Peter and Paul were preaching different gospels, that they were rivals of some sort. He wanted to stave off the splintering of the gospel and the fracturing of the churches among this theological line, one that runs directly to the heart and soul of the gospel itself. And so he goes to Jerusalem to have a conference, and he hopes by this conference he'd be able to receive and secure unity so that he could stave off the rumors. And so he writes this part for the Galatians' sake so that his historical defense would serve to bolster the idea that although he did not receive the gospel or his calling and commission as an apostle from the other apostles in Jerusalem and therefore to be subservient to them, he would still receive their affirmation. He would still receive the right hand of the fellowship from them to show their solidarity with one another that they are indeed on the same team, preaching the same gospel. And therefore, the gospel that he preaches to them, in which they were in danger of abandoning, must be recovered before they are all led astray by those wicked teachers peddling a false gospel. That's the overview of the meeting. Notice in verse 2 the occasion for this meeting. He says, I went up because of a revelation and to set before them, though privately, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. So he gives two reasons for his going to Jerusalem to speak with Peter, James, and John. The first, he says, because he received a revelation. He receives a revelation. He was, in one form or fashion of another, compelled, prompted by God to go to Jerusalem and seek an audience with these men. 
Now, whether he received this revelation as a vision or simply as an impression or a clear leading of the Spirit, we're not told, and so we should not speculate. But he was nonetheless compelled and prompted by God, by the leading of the Spirit in one form or another, to go to Jerusalem to speak with these men, to confer and to have their affirmation. This, of course, would be another reminder about who Paul is really serving, about what is most vitally important to him. That he goes to Jerusalem not because he's worried that he has their disapproval or disappointment, but only because Christ has commanded him to go. He receives a revelation. And so that's when he decides to go. After 14 years of proclaiming and preaching and establishing and planting new churches, he's compelled by God to go. What was the nature of this prompting or this compelling? What underlines what is important to him? The unity of the churches that he has helped plant. It's the purity of the gospel, which he sees is becoming endangered by the false teachers that are spreading out from Jerusalem and into the other nations in surrounding provinces. So what is most important to Paul is his allegiance and service to Christ. Christ commands him to go, and so he goes. And he sees the gospel falling in, into false teachers' hands, teaching, twisting, adding to. And what is so important to him, what he has given his life for, now is being distorted to the point where he feels compelled by the Lord to go and deal with the issue, at first privately, and eventually in Acts 15, publicly, with the apostles in Jerusalem. Friends, oh, that we would be so compelled by our own devotion to Christ and our own devotion and affection for the gospel that we would go where he would send us, that we would seek to accomplish that which we are tasked to do, that the compelling of the gospel would be so forceful upon us that we do not think even for a moment of disobeying a command to take steps. Where has he led you? Where has he called you that your foot's your feet have hesitant to stride, to speak, to preach, to go. Are there missionaries among us who would go overseas to preach the gospel to unreached people? Are there those who would start a Bible study in their home so that the young and the immature may see maturity in Christ? Are there some here who are called to plant new churches in underserved and impoverished areas? Where are the elders, the deacons, the faithful church members, the evangelists? Would we be so compelled by our own devotion to Christ and the gospel that when we see a clear calling and impression by God to go, whether a leading of the spirit or a prompting of the heart, however you want to dress it up with spiritual language, I will let the gray areas of theology aside, if you feel compelled by the Lord and it comports with what Scripture teaches you and you have the blessing and the affirmation of the Christians around you, you should go without hesitation or reservation. And this will mark for you among the nations, wherever you serve, that your allegiance is not to man, not even to your own comfort, but to Christ above all. And what is most prized of your, of your possessions is the gospel itself. And that you would see men and women come to faith in Christ. So Paul is compelled to go to Jerusalem to meet with these men because Christ has commanded him. And he is so enthralled with the gospel 
that he would never see it fall into distortion and ill repute by the hands of false teachers without giving his life for it. The second reason, he says, is that he would go in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain, he says, there in verse 2. He set before them the gospel that he has proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. Now, this is not a fear or an insecurity of Paul, thinking that he might have for 14 years gotten it wrong. Paul, if anything, was very confident that he was preaching the gospel. He knew what he was to do and say. He needed no affirmation. And yet he goes, he says, to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Let me summarize it for you this way. He might have well have said, I laid my gospel and what I teach before them in order to protect the unity of the church and to ensure that the work for which I had labored would not be lost because of this controversy. That's the sentiment of what he says. If the 14 years of labor would go under in a moment when the false teachers had led Christians astray to believe a gospel that has work instead of faith as its central tenet, then Paul would be defeated. And so in order to protect the unity of the church, to ensure that the work in which he has strived for 14 years was not wasted and carried away by the deceit of the enemy, these false teachers and these empty philosophies and these vain deceits, he goes to the Jerusalem church, to the leaders there privately, to have a conference that for the sake of the unity and the purity of the gospel, they can once and for all begin to put an end to these rumors and these false teachers. I think we can take a lesson from Paul then. Not only that we must have our priorities and the precious promises of the gospel as our own gift and highest treasure, but that we must be ready to seek clarity, even among our own brethren, over controversy. When there is an issue at hand that seeks to potentially undermine the gospel, to discredit the teaching of Scripture, we must be willing to confront and lovingly speak to others that we would put an end to such speculation. It's human nature that controversy would arise in churches. Even saved and transformed Christians will find ways to be vindictive and rude and disunifying. And yet when their controversy does arise, our goal, like Paul's, is to seek clarity and reconciliation. His aim here was to show that he and Peter and the apostles there in Jerusalem were not at odds. They were not rivals. They were preaching the same gospel, and they could see it and affirm it and recognize it as true. He wants to put an end to the rumors and the controversy that says Paul is preaching a gospel that cares not for God's word and the law of Moses. They twist and distort Paul's teaching they ruin and destroy the gospel and in so doing potentially make ruin of the Galatians' souls. And Paul says, for the sake of the gospel, he seeks clarity over controversy. 
Paul easily could have steamrolled over his opponents. He could have not visited the Jerusalem elders and apostles there. He could have put his stake in the ground, drawn a line in the sand and said, I'm right, I know I'm right, Christ has told me I'm right. And indeed, he would have been proven true in time. But the humility Paul shows here through the compelling and the prompting of God was to go before these men whom he respected and lays before them the gospel which he preaches to end the controversy and to put clarity among those who would seek to distort it. So the occasion then is that God prompts him because of his great love for the church and for the gospel. I want to do lastly then just consider the outcome of the meeting. He goes, he meets, he lays the gospel before them. Well, what happens? Three things happen as an outcome of the meeting. First, repudiation. Second, affirmation. Third, cooperation. Repudiation, affirmation, and cooperation. Look what happens in verses 3 through 5. He says, as he meets with the Jerusalem apostles, he lays the gospel to verify that the work he's laboring in for 14 years would not be in vain. He says that even Titus, who was with him, which he brought strategically, I would add, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. This was the very meat and potatoes of the controversy. Greeks had to be circumcised to be part of this Jewish sect called Christianity. That's what the teachers would say. That Christianity was good. What Christ did was good. He, he's ransomed you from your sin, but now the law tells you what you should do. And the law says, be circumcised, covenant members. Well, this is a distortion of what Paul taught Indeed, what Jesus himself had taught, that the law was fulfilled in him. And so he brings along Titus, a, a Greek, an uncircumcised Gentile, so that he could have a test case for this issue among the elders, that it could be once and for all dealt with in the presence of these men. Now, Paul isn't against circumcision per se. He's a Jew. In fact, he allowed and gave his consent to Timothy to be circumcised. So for a Jew who was converted to Christianity, circumcision wasn't necessarily a bad thing. But what Paul would go on to say is that circumcision at the end of the day is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. The point is not a ritual or a rite you perform. An external sign does not save you. Though it may be good and valuable, this morning after the service, we will perform an external ritual of baptism. But that baptism does not save. And to demand that you be baptized, unless you are baptized, you cannot be saved, is to distort the gospel. Something similar was happening here with circumcision. And so he brings Titus very cleverly along with him, knowing that there are men who sneak in to such gatherings and try to expose and confront this Gentile, demands that he be circumcised. And so Titus was a test case. What happens then as an outcome of this meeting is that the Jerusalem apostles with Paul and Barnabas and those with them repudiates the insistence that circumcision or anything else would be required for salvation or necessary for godliness. So Titus, who was brought in as a test case for the legitimacy of Paul's preaching, 
And it seems that in Jerusalem, Paul went toe-to-toe with these certain false brothers, he calls them. And he comes out on top. The apostles there agreeing with Paul that Titus was not to be forced into circumcision or any other conformation of the law. That the law would not, indeed cannot save. The gospel is by faith. Justification is by faith alone. And so this is a, a win for Paul. Because it, it both demonstrates and preserves the heart and purity of the gospel. This is what Paul has been meaning to do. That, that the churches wouldn't be divided because the gospel is not being divided is on display in the fact that the elders or the apostles there in Jerusalem and Paul and Barnabas and those leaders with him both affirm that this brother Titus does not need to be circumcised. That's a direct contradiction to the circumcision party's argument. And that is a win for Paul and a win for the gospel. And that's why he includes this here. The heart and the purity of the gospel there is at stake. He says that we did not yield in submission, verse 5, even for a moment. Why? So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So in the standing firm, in the refusal of demanding that a Gentile be circumcised for their salvation, if they want to be a Christian, he is preserving the gospel for the Galatians. So you understand what's at stake. If, if Titus is circumcised, the Galatians don't get the gospel of free grace. Instead, they had to earn their salvation like everyone else, and then like everyone else, remain under God's condemnation. Paul in Romans gives a clear explanation of how the law cannot, will not save. It is not meant to save. The gospel alone is necessary and sufficient to save. And therefore, by defending Titus's right as a Gentile to believe and be justified by faith alone, He preserves the unity and the integrity of the gospel for the sake of the Gentiles in Galatia. It reminds me of a a quote by Martin Luther King Jr. who says that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Have you heard this before? It's a powerful quote. I think if we augment that just a little bit here for St. Paul, we could say that heresy anywhere is a threat to truth everywhere. He was dealing with a Jerusalem problem so that a Gentile Christian would receive the gospel. In all the churches, he desires that they be unified doctrinally on the true gospel of justification by faith in the death of Jesus Christ and in no other, not themselves, not in the law, not in another person for them, not in their own merits or morals, but in Christ and Christ alone. And by securing this, now and for Jerusalem, For Titus, he preserves it for any and all who would come to faith. And so what happens in this meeting is a clear repudiation of the insistence that circumcision or anything else is required for salvation or necessary for gospel, godliness. What is at the heart of the gospel? It is Christ's fulfillment of the law. He says in Matthew chapter 5 that I did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. And so what Jesus says about the heart of the gospel and his mission is not a repudiation of the law and an ending or a terminating of it, but a fulfillment of it. That is, he brings it to its right and true consummation. He completes the law in his own body. Christ fulfills the law. And so 
submission to the external commandments of Scripture in the Old Testament, circumcision, dietary, dress code, what have you, will not earn salvation, but Christ has fulfilled every law. We also see at the heart of the gospel this righteousness by faith, not by works, which Paul will eventually soon spend more time on in Galatians and elucidate more in Romans. Not only at the heart of the gospel is Jesus' fulfillment of the law and justification of righteousness by faith, but at the end of the day, it is about Christians' freedom in Christ not to be bound by the commandments of men or in Scripture that has been fulfilled by Christ. He will speak to this very clearly in Galatians chapter 5. You are free. Do not then become slaves again to the law. So at the heart of the gospel, he says, must be a repudiation of works that gain your righteousness or standing before God. And if it is true for Titus, it's true for you. You are not commanded to obey external commands of the law, but by faith, believe and receive grace. Time does not permit us to give a more thorough treatment of the law, but we will do in several coming weeks. Know that Paul here does not dismiss the law or unhitch it from the gospel altogether. But for the sake of the gospel, there is no command which saves except the command to believe. The second outcome of the meeting from repudiation is affirmation. He does indeed receive the affirmation of the apostles. In four ways we see this in verse 6. He says that those had recognized Paul's calling, says that they did not add anything to me. Look at verse 6. For those who seemed to be influential added nothing to me. Nothing about what he is or does or says, his mission, they did not add at all to Paul. He was able to stand on his own two feet, as it were, maybe apostolically speaking. Nothing could be added to his message because it was the pure teaching of the gospel. Again in verse 7, he says that they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel. They could not add because he had exactly what he claimed to have. And they saw and recognized that he had been entrusted with the gospel. Notice that they did not recognize that he took their gospel and did it faithfully. No, that he had been entrusted by Christ with the gospel. The source of Paul's calling they recognized and his commission as apostle was not only legitimate, but it was, as we noticed last week, actually divine by Christ himself. Again, the affirmation comes through in verse 8. that They recognize that he who worked through Peter worked also through me, he says. Peter to the circumcised, me to the uncircumcised. So Paul here was called and empowered by the very same God, the very same Spirit, under the heads of the very same Christ to the very same end, although through different means. Peter to the Jews, Paul to the Gentiles. But the gospel was the same. The Christ was the same. The message was the same. God was the same. The Spirit which empowered both of them and made them effective in ministry was the same. And the apostles recognized and affirmed that indeed it was the same. And then again in verse 9, the first part of verse 9, they recognized and saw the grace given to me. They perceived the grace given to me. Now what kind of grace is he speaking of? The grace to be converted as a Christian or the grace to be called as an apostle? I think the grace called to be given the command and the mission of an apostle to the Gentiles. In Romans 1.5, he speaks of the same grace given to me 
to be an apostle. So they recognize, indeed, not only was Paul clearly effective in his preaching and used by God to bring Gentiles to faith in Christ, but that he was legitimately, legitimately an apostle of Christ like them. They could not detract or add at all to his apostleship. He was an apostle like them. And so repudiation, affirmation, and last outcome of the meeting there in Jerusalem with the men was cooperation. Again, look in the second part of verse 9 and verse 10. That they saw and they extended the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and Paul, that they should go to the Gentiles to be circumcised. Now, the church at Antioch would be the one, I think, officially to send out Paul and Barnabas to the, to the, to the Gentiles. But here they gave not only their affirmation, but cooperated with them in that mission. And then they says in verse 10, only they asked us to remember the poor, that is the poor saints in Jerusalem, the very thing he was eager to do. So in the spirit of cooperation, having affirmed Paul's apostleship and legitimacy as, as a preacher of the gospel and the integrity and the purity of the gospel he does preach and having together repudiated this false gospel of adding works on top of this gospel, they enter into fellowship together. Two ways the fellowship is manifest. One, missional. Secondly, social. The first missional is that he, he's granted the, the affirmation and the cooperation of the church of Jerusalem to go to the Gentiles. He and Barnabas and those along with him would go to the other nations and preach effectively as he had for the last 14 years the gospel to those who are uncircumcised. The second fellowship there was social. That there were no two camps of Christianity, the uncircumcised and the circumcised, but their unity in Christ binds them together. And that wherever Paul would go, he would collect an offering to send back to Jerusalem. And he mentions this several times in his letters. And he himself at one point would take the offering back to Jerusalem. And on his way from there, he would be arrested, ultimately headed to Rome, where he would be martyred. So, by God's prompting, Paul goes to Jerusalem, meets with Peter, James, and John, and together the outcome of that meeting is the repudiation of this false gospel and these false brothers, an affirmation of the legitimacy of Paul's calling and apostleship and the purity and the integrity of the gospel he preaches as the same that they preached, and a cooperation and fellowship with these brothers that would be the bedrock of their fellowship together. We'll see next week that that doesn't stop Paul from having to confront Peter in a moment of weakness. But the outcome of such a meeting was indeed central to Paul's idea here that the gospel cannot be distorted. As he seeks to, to unify the church doctrinally, socially, he goes to Jerusalem to establish this fact. I want to give you just two exhortations and we'll be done. First, friends, I want you to marvel and proclaim. Marvel at the gospel that Paul has preached and that the Jerusalem apostles preach and proclaim in the fullness of truth and grace that gospel. You see, at the crux of Paul's defense here is an, an insistence that God intends to accomplish his saving purposes for the world 
through whatever means he sees fit. Through Paul, God is doing something amazing at an unprecedented scale. Certainly Judaism had its own converts. God-fearers, these Gentiles who would be converted, proselytes to the Jewish faith, would be welcomed in. We see hints of that even in the establishing of the temple as Solomon prays that all the nations would come to worship God to the temple. But Paul here, through Paul, God's doing something amazing at an unprecedented scale. He's drawing in the Gentiles from all over into a covenant community with himself. And this is a new work, though the plan, of course, was set in motion ages before. And though Paul's opponents and even some of the disciples themselves could not imagine God breaking with convention, that he might do something indeed new, Paul's life and ministry was proof enough that God was indeed at work in the saving of the Gentiles and the drawing them to himself by faith in Christ. And so, friends, you, like the Galatians, must welcome and celebrate this truth, that God has done something new in Christ. To my knowledge, none of us here are ethnic Jews, which means we all are part of the covenant community of Christ if indeed we have trusted and put our faith in the work of Christ, his death and resurrection, because of this truth, the Gentiles have been grafted into the covenant promises of God by faith. You should welcome and celebrate this truth. You cannot earn it, obey the law, do enough good deeds. You cannot carry on the back of another person. You must believe the gospel of free grace is just that. Welcome and celebrate the truth. But you, like the Galatians, must also proclaim this truth and defend it ardently, passionately, zealously. As much as Paul proclaimed it, you must also proclaim it. You must also defend it. Proclaim it to yourself, where you are tempted in your own life to add to the gospel, to put stock in your own work. Proclaim it and preach it to one another when you see, like Peter, a subtle distortion or a breaking down of the truth of the gospel. You ultimately must proclaim it to the world as like Paul and Barnabas, we are sent into our communities and around the world to proclaim this message that Christ died for the sins of his people. So marvel and proclaim the gospel secondly then and lastly defend and fortify. Know that the enemy will seek to play us against one another. If a house divided against itself will not stand, then it would be central to the enemy's attack, attack and strategy to drive a wedge between the churches. Now, there are good reasons to divide. There are good reasons, even wise and prudent reasons, that we, for instance, do not meet together with the Presbyterian church down the street. But this is not to say that we would say, Oh, you're not a Christian. We must be careful about how we throw around the word heresy, about how we speak of the genuine faith of others. Know, friends, that the enemy will seek to play us against one another, to drive a wedge, to, to hide us in each one of our own camps, to wage war against one another so that we may be distracted from his true intentions. We may be weakened and overcome by the snares of the enemy. 
which he lays for us. Be on guard against that. Be careful not to let that happen. How? By knowing the gospel well and being diligent. Christ tells his disciples to be watchful. Both Peter and Jude remind the Christian that we must contend for the faith, to be careful and watch over it and one another. The greatest remedy against the shipwrecking tide of disunity in the church, ultimately, friends, is humility grounded in love. When we recognize that we cannot add to our own salvation and that we could never, upon pain of death and damnation, persuade others that they could add to their salvation. We must remember that we do so grounded in love and a posture of humility. For this, Christ is our example. Christ, who is the Son of God, condescended to earth. He took on the form of a servant, of a man, And though he did not sin, took on the penalty of sin for us, our sin. Galatians will tell us that he suffered and became a curse as he was hung on a tree. And he did this so that he might save us, redeem us from the curse of the law. All the wrath, God's wrath against our sin was put on Christ. And on the cross he hung there and suffered God's wrath. He did so with humility and with joy. We too must walk in humility and joy, knowing that we have been forgiven, received, welcomed this beautiful gift of God's free grace in the gospel, but then with all of our lives, defend it, work to keep it pure, stave off attacks from the enemy, both within and without. Above all, we must be ready to love, forgive, to seek the truth, at all times, to speak the truth in love and to bear with one another. All of those one another's of the New Testament, all of that which is, out, which is outlined in our own covenant as a church, says that we will do so because we have received the greatest benefit of the gospel and Christ himself has modeled perfectly for us what this looks like. That's what it means to be a Christian. Not to earn salvation, but to look to Christ who has earned it for us by his own perfect life, by his perfect substitutionary death on the cross, by the taking on of God's wrath against our sin and upon his resurrection from the dead where a perfect sacrifice could not remain in the grave. This is our hope. This is what we proclaim. This is what we believe. This is what we put all of our trust in. And this is what Paul demands the Galatians never to forget, never to stray from. The moment that that becomes distorted, Factions, disunity, and arguments over the minor, less weightier aspects of the law will throw us off balance and lead us astray. And there the enemy lies in wait. Like a roaring lion, he waits, seeking to kill, steal, and destroy. But our protection is the love and the humility of Christ and the Spirit of God which empowers us to walk in his example. If indeed you are a Christian, you have that power and authority now. But if you're not a Christian this morning, and the explanation of the gospel, the, the death of Christ has not been real and made manifest for you, I pray, God, that you, that you would save these individuals now. That they would come manifold wisdom of their sin would be made known to them. That they would see in their own lives and hearts the folly of rebellion against you. 
that they, like the Jerusalem Council, would repudiate the false gospel of works righteousness. That they would see the gospel which Paul preaches, the gospels laid out in the New and Old Testaments, is the true gospel. And that we would work together as a church to grow in humility and love and service. Not only for our good, but for the glory of God. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. You'll have to go out. They'll be waiting for you right there in the hallway. Go out and make sure that you do the exchange with them properly. But then please bring your family back in as we take the Lord's Supper together. Um, and John will, John will explain more about that. Take a moment of silent prayer and then we'll sing to God.